Welcome to Real Talk, a Wave Grant podcast. Hi, everyone. This is the second episode of Real Talk, a Wave Grant podcast. Very, very excited to share an incredible conversation that Amy and I had with Eliana Pipes, who was the first ever Wave Grantee. Fun fact. She's the one who encouraged me to apply to the WAVE grant. So in many ways, she's a little bit of my fairy godmother. We talk about writing from personal experience, taking notes, picking battles, and killing darlings, the differences in process between writing for animation and live action. And the cool thing right now about Eliana is not only is she in post-production for her second short film, but she's also in her first ever writer's room. So we also get into the experience of writing collaboratively in a writer's room for TV. So enjoy this conversation with Eliana Pipes. It's very, very inspiring, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Amy. Hey, Anna. How's it going? I'm good. I'm sad that we're not together recording, but we're trying remote recording today. So each of us on a coast, the coasts are safe. Well, we're kind of living the bicoastal dream right now, aren't we? Here we are. I know. If we were one person, yeah. <laughs> we kind of are at this point. Um, but anyway, I'm excited to talk about today's topic, writing from personal experience. I think one of the things when we were creating the shape of this podcast and the outline and taking it from sort of the first ideation stage all the way through distribution of your short film is thinking about what is that story and then how do you sit down and write that story? I think a lot of people starting out start off as writer-directors and I feel like personal stories make for really strong short films because Oftentimes you have a point of view about the things that have happened to you, and so it will translate onto the screen. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit before we introduce our incredible guest, who I'm so excited to talk to. Um, I want to talk a little bit about our Wave Grant shorts and the experience of writing them and our personal connection to our short film. So Amy, can you tell us a little bit about Breaking Fast or the Coca-Cola and how that story came to be? Yeah, definitely. You know, this film is actually a great example of writing from personal stories, from a personal place, because it actually started off as a personal essay before it was a short film. I was in this process of writing where I was thinking about just stories from my upbringing, stories that I wanted to potentially just write about from a personal essay perspective, not even thinking about filmmaking at the time. And I wrote an essay called Breaking Fast with Coca-Cola that was based on an experience that I had with my best friend when I was 16, when we decided that we were going to fast for Ramadan for the first time because we didn't grow up religious and we also had to hide our fasting that summer from our parents because, again, we didn't grow up religious. We didn't really want to explain it to our parents why we were doing this because we just felt that they wouldn't understand. So I wrote this essay reflecting on that experience and then I took that essay and I turned it into a short film script and then that's the film that I applied for for the WAVE grant and I ended up making. And so, I mean, yeah, like I think... The fact that it was a personal story, I think for me, made it actually very easy to write it as a script. I actually wrote the script in like a weekend. Like I wrote it over Labor Day weekend in 2021. And I think I could write it so fast because it was my truth and I had lived that story. And so, so much of that experience, even when I was on set, even during prep, like during the whole entire writing and filmmaking process, I felt like it was a little easier because I knew what these characters were thinking and, you know, who they were because it was me in a lot of ways. <laughs> and Anna, could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, writing from a personal place with your film? Yeah. So my film, Te Llaman Las Olas, it's about a seamstress who is sort of questioning whether or not she should stay in Puerto Rico where she lives or if she should move to the U.S. to be where her daughter is. And it's also a really personal story. My mom lives in Puerto Rico. I'm obviously in the United States and I have been now for a little over 10 years. And it's sort of like, you know, I'm on the phone with my mom all the time. I call her like probably once or twice a day. And it's always like the question mark hanging in the air, like at the end of our phone calls is like, you know, we love each other so much. And there's this question of like, what are we doing, like, living so far away from one another? But obviously, we're both in really different stages of our lives. And I think I wrote this film trying to sort of understand 
where she's coming from. She's a woman of a certain age. And, you know, she's done the thing of, like, leaving and coming back. And she wants to live in Puerto Rico. Like, that's just where she wants to be. And I am sort of in the phase of my life where I'm following my dreams. And (laughs) Puerto Rico can't really offer me some of the things that I am seeking for or looking. And I am having that life experience of leaving. And we'll see if I come back. But I think that's something that I was trying to like excavate at. I had written a bunch of things before, short scripts and stuff that wasn't so personal to me or whatever. And this one really felt like a raw nerve. Like this one felt like I was scared to share this and it felt very vulnerable. But then that's when I was like, okay, I might be like cooking with gas here if it feels kind of so scary. Um, So it's a good thing, you know, on one hand, like Amy's experience of like it being very easy and it sort of like flowing out of you. My experience was a little different in that it wasn't that it was challenging to write, but it was challenging to share just because it's it's something that there can be some shame around like leaving your hometown and 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 what do you have to show for it when you leave and and whatnot. So those are our shorts and obviously we had the privilege of being supported by the Wave Grant with these very personal stories. I'm very very excited for us to talk to our guest who is also a Wave Grant alum. So today we are very fortunate to introduce our guest Eliana Pipes is a writer, filmmaker, and performer based in her hometown of Los Angeles. As a filmmaker, she was awarded the Academy Gold Fellowship for Women through the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the inaugural Wave Grant through Wavelength Productions, and the Outfest Colin Higgins Youth Filmmaker Award. Her animated short film, Nails, premiered at Outfest and has screened at 12 festivals in the U.S. and internationally. She's a member of the Sundance Latin Collab Scholarship Cohort and alum of the Orchard Project Episodic Lab and was a finalist for the Humanitas Angel Comedy Prize. She's currently in a writer's room for a series with Stars and Lionsgate. As a playwright, her writing awards include the KCACTF Harold and Mimi Steinberg Award and Ken Ludwig Scholarship, Leah Ryan Prize, National Latin Playwright Award, UCSD's Dr. Floyd Gaffney National Playwriting Prize and Dramatist Guild Foundation Fellowship. Her play Dream House had a world premiere triple co-production with the Alliance Theater, Long Wharf Theater, and Baltimore Center Stage and is published at Concord Samuel French. And her play Bite Me recently premiered off-Broadway with WP and Colt Kerr. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. It is like so, so lovely to sit with you both. Wow, I feel starstruck even just reading this bio. And I've I've like known you for like half of the things that you've gotten, but even just reading all of this, it's so inspiring. I'm so excited to dive in. Thank you. That's so kind. Hearing that made me like sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have the most impressive biography. It's I mean, just like looking at this and then looking at you, I'm like, how have you accomplished all of this in such <gasps> little time? It's it's really, I mean, it's really admirable. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. That's really kind. But today, I think, you know, to start off, uh, probably makes the most sense to talk about your project that was supported by Wave, Nails. Could you tell us a little bit about the film and your process of writing it? Sure thing. So Nails follows a girl who's preparing for her quinceanera, and she develops a crush on another girl in her quince court, which makes her fingernails grow at this superhuman pace, which is a blessing in Black and Latina beauty culture, but a curse for a lesbian, at least at first glance. And so the (laughs) film is this sort of whimsical, intersectional, uplifting coming-of-age story about the sort of cultural space between communities of color and queerness. And this project had a really, really long road to coming to be, particularly at the script phase. So this project was actually originally a full-length play. When I applied for the WAVE grant, I was in an MFA playwriting program. And as a quick plug, the MFA playwriting program that I went to and many MFA playwriting programs are fully funded. So they pay you to go and write a bunch. So just a plug, if you're considering a graduate education, I would look into a playwriting program. But I was in this playwriting program at the time. I knew that I was interested in working for the screen and I was looking for more opportunities to direct. And then the WAVE grant showed up and I decided to apply. And it was actually my mom who gets credit for the idea of, oh, why don't you adapt that play that you just wrote for class? And so I went through the process of turning this 90-page 
full-length stage play into a 15-page live-action short film. And that's what I applied to the Wave Grant with, and I was so thankful to win. And then 2020 happened. (laughs) And when the pandemic landed, it very quickly became clear that it was not going to be possible to make this live-action project, at least for a long time. Uh, And again, I was in a playwriting program, and of course, the theater shuttered nationwide. And so I was just in this moment where I was watching so many projects die, and so many things that I had been hopeful for, prospects that I had been dreaming of, just become impossible. And it really ignited this thing in me of like, all right, this little film is not going to (laughs) die. This is actually something that I have the power to keep alive, and I will not let this die. And I didn't know how, and I didn't know what I was going to do. But then the idea came from a mentor of mine, actually, to make the project animated, which makes a lot of sense now that I'm thinking (laughs) about it, because the project has so much to do with this incredible spectacle of her nails growing and growing and growing. Looking back, it's ridiculous to me that my plan A was to glue nail (laughs) extensions onto a human being. Yeah. That was plan A. Very production friendly. (laughs) Wow. I know. I can't wait. I'm sure that my production designer would have loved that or costumes. I don't know who would have hated me for that, but somebody would have. But an exciting suggestion and it immediately felt really right, especially because so much of the story had to do with visual symbolism. Only problem is I didn't know anything about animation. I had never worked in the medium before, had absolutely zero experience outside of watching animated movies. That kicked me off on this journey of learning the form of animation. And Wavelength so generously connected me with student animators who literally would just explain the process to me. Mm. So it started with truly learning, like, what are the steps that you have to do? What are some principles to keep in mind? What makes an animation expensive? Because, of course, we still had a budget to consider. Uh, Another thing I learned very quickly is that animation is expensive. Totally. And (laughs) time-consuming. So there were a lot of new lessons that came along the way. But essentially, once I sort of got a handle on the process, I reached out to a friend and wonderful collaborator, Revel Rosa, who I went to high school with, actually. I went to an arts high school in LA, and they were a visual artist in the program. And they agreed to sign on with me and design the characters and also move through storyboards. And then I embarked on the adventure of completely reconceiving the story for animation. So it went from being a 90-page play to a 15-page live-action story to a five-page no-dialogue animation. Because one of the biggest things that transformed when the project became animated is that we couldn't afford dialogue. Dialogue is expensive and challenging to do. So we literally could not afford talking. So again, it went from 90 pages of nothing but talking to five minutes of no talking at all. Uh, And it was so really, truly challenging, but also really exciting to see that the story could live and actually be really viable in each of those forms. And I have to say that now that I'm on the other side of it, I think that animation is really where this project found its home. Mm. I think this is absolutely, this version of this story, the purest, truest form of it. And I'm so glad, ultimately, that I got to this distillation. And one other thing that I'll mention that is so funny to me is that structurally, in the 90-page version, the 15-page version, and the 5-page version, they are structurally identical. (gasps) The inciting incident is the same. The midpoint is the same. The closing is the same. Like, they are absolutely identical. I think that just sort of speaks to... I'm a a very structure-oriented writer. It's just sort of how... I happen to be wired, and so it, it is remarkable to me. It's it's a literally a five minute to the to the second animation, and at exactly thirty seconds we have our inciting incident. At exactly two minutes and thirty seconds, that was not intentional as we were going through the process. But looking back at it, it blows my mind that it's like truly to the second where those plot points come. It's so satisfying. Well, what I mean, I definitely found it super striking because I, I recently watched the short, and the first thing I noticed was I was like, wait there are no words. There, There's no dialogue. <laughs> yeah. This is so interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this was your directorial debut, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. I have a bit of a directing history, but it was all sort of student filmmaking and primarily sketch comedy. I ran my campus sketch comedy group for three years in undergrad. So I did a lot of writing and I did a lot of filmmaking, but we literally would shoot for two hours on a Sunday afternoon. So it was very slapdash and very Mm. sort of informal. And it really gave me the muscle of like, make something, figure it out, fail, do it again. And I, I don't really consider any of those Um, my directorial debuts necessarily. So for me, yes, this is my first resourced short film. So yes, Nails is my debut. Segwaying off of that, like you're a writer turned filmmaker. 
because most of your sort of background training, all of it is in playwriting. You know, you come from a really strong theater background or again, it's like dialogue based and then filmmaking, you add the layer of image. So I'm curious about that transition and how you think being a writer first influenced your filmmaking and also maybe vice versa, how now that you've made films, because now you're in post-production for your second short, which we'll get to in a bit. Now that you're doing that, how has that now influenced writing projects? Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. I've worked in a lot of different mediums over the course of my sort of time as an artist. I actually started out as an actor, as like an itty bitty baby actor. I was a child actor in Los Angeles, which is a ridiculous thing to be. My sort of path as an artist began really for two reasons. One of them being my nerdy, nerdy parents who met in a book club (laughs) who really encouraged me to be creative and particularly to write because they're both writers themselves. My mother's a wonderful poet. And so my parents were always really supportive and created a sort of home environment that was very sort of literary. And then the other big one was nonprofit programs that reached out to my underserved LA public schools. I grew up in an era where there was mass cuts to funding for arts education. And this set of nonprofits really stepped in, particularly nonprofits from theaters, organizations like Young Storytellers and the Actors Gang and Center Theater Group's education initiatives really, really made a big difference for me. And so as early as like elementary school, I had written my first script, thanks to Young Storytellers. And so from a really young age, I was in a fortunate position where I just sort of felt like writing belonged to me and it was something I could do. And so I think having that access made a huge difference for me really early on. So fourth grade, I wrote my first script and I was like, okay, easy, whatever. Um, And then I started (laughs) performing with the Actors Gang's after school, middle school programs. And I really, really fell in love with acting. And I was an actor for many years. And then I went to an arts high school as a performer. And then in about my junior year of high school, I started to turn back to writing again, really out of a frustration with the kinds of roles available to me as an actor. Started to see the field a little bit and put together the dots of like, okay, so I'm going to be the silent girlfriend. The field felt bleak. And so I turned to writing again in high school really actively as a way of creating roles and creating space for people who didn't get to have a voice in mainstream media as I saw it. And then I really saw myself as a writer who was influenced by my work as an actor. And I still really am. (laughs) This is so goofy, but it's true. I love to write. I have a standing desk set up and I'll put my standing desk across from a mirror that I have. No. And then I read (laughs) to myself (laughs) my my scripts as I write them. And I'll like act out both parts of the scene. I find reading my work out loud really, really helpful. You're still an actor at heart. (laughs) Absolutely. And I find it so helpful to hear the words out loud, even if it's just me and myself. So I think that part of my acting still really influences my writing. I had always been, as a writer, very visually oriented. I am a very spectacle-driven playwright. And as I started to learn more about directing, it occurred to me that I had been trying to use a directorial skill set as a playwright. It helped me realize that directing opened up access to a lot of tools that I had been trying to deploy as a writer. And so it was really thrilling to be able to take on all of those tools in a different way and to learn about how I could use a shot to convey something that I would instead have to sort of muscle through trying to convey in writing. And so much of moving into filmmaking for me has been realizing how much less I need to push with the writing almost. Mm. A lot of what happened on set was like, oh, actually, you can just look at her and we don't need those lines. (laughs) Right. Even though on set there were lines that were unnecessary and needed to be cut, I actually do kind of stand by keeping them on the page because I do think that in order to convey to the reader what that look could convey, I do think actually we needed that line on the page. Well, and also for the actor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when it comes to grasping the story, like in execution, there are things we can do differently. But I actually do think the script is a document that has to live independently of the image before we get to that stage. I actually do think it can be helpful to have some more of that infrastructure. I don't think that the script as it stands now would have worked on the page. But anyway, filmmaking has helped me sort of loosen up and ease up on my writing a lot. And I also think that the sort of same structural sensibility that I have as a writer also really dives into my Mm -hmm. filmmaking. It just is the way that I think and the way that I have fun, honestly. And so I could definitely see myself having my writer structure fun visually as a filmmaker as well. Well, that's, it was kind of a point that I was alluding to in the earlier question was, you know, because there was no dialogue in Nails, I feel like it was kind of like the best dive headfirst into directing because it's purely visual. And I'm very curious, because there was no dialogue, how did you write that script? How did you 
take a script that had dialogue that was supposed to be live action, and now you're going to like a purely visual animated medium. What does that script look like? Yeah, the script is weird. It's just a big, big old action block. What was helpful about writing the script out first, and I actually write everything. Like, So I wrote the script out, and then I storyboarded 240 frames before passing them to my storyboard artist to make them look pretty. I call my frames the melted goblin frames because I am not a visual <laughs> artist and they look horrifying. Um, but before I storyboarded each sequence, I would also write out for myself what the storyboards were going to be like because that's just how I process and it helped me the most. But a lot of what was helpful about scripting it was that we had to name a bunch of conventions that were going to show up visually. There's a moment in the short where she goes into the internet and the character is sort of <laughs> Googling and sort of trying to figure out who she is culturally by Googling it. Um, I read an article the other day about how Google searches for am I gay have gone up like 400% and it's such a funny oh sweet little thing. But like, of course, <laughs> what, who else are you going to ask? Um, so there's a moment where she goes into the internet and we, I think we called them signifier bubbles. And so she's like jumping around all the signifier bubbles. So the script would say there are red signifier bubbles for culture and blue signifier bubbles for queerness. And it would talk about the little bubbles that she bounced around. There is a moment in the end of the script where she ends up with her love interest and there's a heart glow. And so the <laughs> script talks about the heart glow. And it was so funny because that then became the sort of vocabulary that we used with the animators. So we would have long conversations about the heart glow and like, are the sparkles here sparkly enough? <laughs> yes. One thing I loved about working love with that. animators is that there's such a real intense focus on making things cute. <laughs> we would have deep <laughs> conversations about like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's the cutest option? Yes, I love that. It was amazing. And I think it actually also really influenced my next short because it was Which just, is so cute. Live you. action and cute. Live action and cute. And there was something really liberating, I think particularly coming from a master's program and the world of the theater where there's a lot of like, is this uh, cutting enough? Is this cerebral enough? Is there's, this art? Is this art? Is this high art? Is this groundbreaking? Is this uh, going to shift forward the medium of the American theater to instead use the value system of what's the cutest? Yeah. That was really liberating for me. Yeah. I loved that. So yeah, it was a lot of sort of naming conventions and then just using that vocabulary. And once I had gotten clear with my storyboard artist about like, okay, this is what the signifier bubbles are going to look like. So it was a lot of just sort of naming things, getting clear with my team on what those names corresponded to, and then just making sure that everybody was on the same page with the visual language. Because there was no dialogue, I think that also meant that we had to be really crystal clear about the symbolism. Mm -hmm. So it was mm -hmm. like, here's our sort of symbol vocabulary that we can use. And in my materials, I made like a key. So it was like, this means happy. This means sad. This color means culture. This color means queerness. And we made sort of like a key guide so that as we were going through and designing things, we could make sure that everything was sort of aligned with the storytelling. And I also want to say, I think it's very possible that somebody could watch the short and totally have no idea what any of those symbols mean. And I think it would still work. One thing that delights me about this project and that I think I had to accept when it became a no dialogue project was that there will be people who understand it on one level. It's basically a Cinderella story. Like there will be yeah. people who understand it as a Cinderella story and see the sort of like love story component. There will be people who get the cultural subtext, but not necessarily the queerness subtext. There will be people who get both. There will be people who get almost none of it, but it's exciting to me that the project can work on those multiple levels for different audience members. I mean, that's like the beauty of filmmaking, right? It's like you make something and you put it out in the world and it's always fun to see what like what people take away from your film. And sometimes it's something that like you didn't even think about when you were writing or directing mm -hmm. your project and people just come up with these things and you're like, oh, like I didn't even know that this was a perspective, but okay, cool. Yes, totally. And I think that's another thing that's so exciting about filmmaking, the way that the project is really enriched by all the other collaborators that you get to bring onto it. You know, the whole ends up being so much stronger than the sum of its parts and so much richer than anything I could have done on my own. It's really, really lovely to be able to work with a team that brings so much to a project. So in this process, when you were kind of in this, you know, putting on your director hat, shifting from being just a writer to now a writer director, when you were making your script, you know, shoot ready or film ready, what was that process like? Did you find it difficult to maybe kill your darlings or push back on certain notes that some of your producers were giving? Could you speak to, to that a little bit? 
I'll answer twice because the process was actually so different for Nails as an animation versus for Mm -hmm. the short that I'm working on now. I bet. For Nails as an animation, this is one of those fun things that I learned about the animation process. (laughs) There kind of is no going back at a certain point. So in animation, (laughs) (laughs) the way that this was described to me is that uh, with a typical film, you shoot your footage and then you cut it together afterwards to sort of form the project. In animation, you build what is called an animatic. The animatic is the storyboards for your project cut together in pace. So the animatic is the timing of your film laid out with your storyboards. And essentially the animatic is then the skeleton of your film. And then you build the sort of like muscles and the skin and the ligaments on top. So once Mm. you have the animatic, that is the timing of your piece. The way that it worked for us was that we had our animatic, we split our animatic up into shots. We had 60 shots. And then basically going off of the storyboards, in some cases, like tracing over the storyboards because our storyboards were gorgeous, we would go shot by shot and do a rough animation of that shot. And then a cleaned animation, which is basically where you connect the lines and make sure that it's able to be colored because then it goes to color. After color, it goes to compositing. Compositing is lighting in animation. So that's when things like the glow from the cell phones would come in and some of the sort of like atmospheric light from outside. And then after compositing, the shot is done. And so there was no ability to say like, oh, actually, can she walk over here? Or (laughs) like, could we change the pacing of this? Everything was paced exactly to the animatic. It it was really like when we had the animatic, we had the film in a way, Um, even though we were so far from finished. There were fine-tuned little details and delightful things that our animators added, a lot of visual gags that they came up with that were so brilliant. Um, there's a moment where a DJ like drops a bottle of water and fumbles for it in a way that makes me laugh out loud every time. So there were sort of little <laughs> enriching details that could be added. But by and large, that thing could not change. In a way, that was liberating because it meant that we could really just focus on getting every shot through that process. We had this massive Google document mm-hmm. of like each stage of the process and then tracking each shot on a row. And we would click off our little buttons every time that the shot finished a particular stage. And it also really spoke to just the incredible generosity of the animators. The person who's doing the initial animation does their best to make sure that the person who's cleaning that shot has the easiest job possible. And then the person cleaning the shot makes sure that the colorist has the easiest job possible. There's a lot of sort of group care in the process that was really lovely to see. So the process of getting it shoot ready was just committing to the animatic, basically. With the short that I'm working on now, I just wrapped a short just to chat a little bit about the project. It is about two teenage girls at an art museum who are desperate to figure out if they're on a date with each other. (laughs) And then their parents meet up in the parking lot and sort of wind up on a date of their own. So it jumps between these two love stories. And with that process, there was a lot of figuring out if it was shoot ready because that project is live action. So this question came into play in a way that I had not been familiar with before. There was a ton of polishing and actually probably I wasted some time polishing because I think there were things that I thought that I could figure out alone in my living room that actually could only be figured out on set. Mm. So I sort of wish that I had maybe like given myself three more hours of sleep instead of (laughs) banging my head against the script that probably wasn't going to be solved. What's an example of something that could have been solved on set? For me, it was a lot of ending beats of scenes for some reason. Like I had written a button for the end of the scene. And then when we got there, I was like, actually, we totally don't need these three lines. Or like, oh, you can just look at her instead of saying these three lines. Or like this physical gesture might be able to replace that. Some of it was also things in the environment like, oh, we don't need to say that. It's going to be on our set so we can just point at it. Um, Things like that. So I think a lot of actually being in the space with the things and the people helped make things clear. And then when it came to killing darlings, I think a lot of the darlings have been killed in the edit so far, but a lot of darlings were also killed early on in the production process. I'm somebody who finds constraints really helpful. And so I think that a lot of darlings were killed because we couldn't afford them. (laughs) Yeah, that'll do it. Independent film. Yeah. 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 And so I think in in a way, I think that was also really liberating because it was like, okay, that's just not this project. And for me, it also took a really long time for me to learn how to have an idea that is the right size for a short film, both in terms of like the right size for the amount of time that we're going to share with the audience, but also the right size for the resources that I'm going to be able to have realistically on a project like this. I spent a lot of time (laughs) putting together scripts for projects that were way too big to be a short film. Turns out the 
adapting a play into a 10 minute project doesn't work like 90% of the mm. time. Um, with this project, this was not something that I had adapted from something else. And then when it comes to notes and picking battles, I think taking notes is to me like a muscle and also sort of like an intuition that I feel like I've built over time. And I think notes I've also just had to accept. And it's one of those things that I have to relearn on every new process that notes will always come. Notes will never not be part of the equation. And I think it also helps to think about notes as like offerings. And Toni Morrison has this quote, like failure is just information. And I think notes are not failures, but it's been really helpful to me to think of notes as just information. Like, okay, this is what this person is reading and this is what this person is feeling and getting out of this. I think giving notes is also a skill and it's helpful to be mindful about if the person giving you notes has the note giving skill. But even if you're getting notes from someone who's not adept at giving them, you can still learn to take them gracefully. (laughs) Navigating notes, I think, is one of the most tricky parts of coming into writing. And all I can say is that it gets easier. And the only way to get through it is to get through it. I was hired to write a feature and I got notes on that feature and I was like afraid to open the email for like a week and a half. I would like open (laughs) the word document and break into a cold sweat and like have to take my temperature because I was sure I had a fever. Like I would get urgent care symptoms from (laughs) just the fact of knowing that those notes were there. And it took so long before I could literally even open up the document. And to my detriment, because that was a week of my revising time that I lost on that anxiety. I think it's also been helpful for me to recognize that stressing out about notes doesn't make them go better. So (laughs) I wish it did. If it did, I would absolutely encourage stressing out about notes, but unfortunately it doesn't. So whenever we can allow ourselves to release and let go of some of that stress, it's helpful. And I also think to the theme of today's podcast, writing personally, I think it can feel so scary to get notes on a project that's personal because it feels like the notes are personal even though they're not. Right. It's like, it's about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, hmm, how interesting this failing that you have. Like, <laughs> or like, how interesting how this thing doesn't make sense. And when I say notes for information, I think that that also speaks to, we all spoke about projects that are really culturally specific and culturally rooted. Yeah. Sometimes the person giving you notes is not your target audience. That's right. Or doesn't yeah, have exactly. the experience that you're writing to. And I think It's a decision that every person has to make on their own about how much do I want this project to be accessible to people who don't have that experience? Does it take something away from the people who do have that lived experience Mm -hmm. to start explaining? I think it's another Toni Morrison quote. She was saying, like, I could tell that those books weren't written for me because they were explaining things that you wouldn't explain if you were talking to me. (laughs) And I think there is an interesting line of, like, what are ways that we can bring as many people along for the ride as possible, but without jeopardizing the authenticity of the journey. I don't have answers, but I think like that's something that I also wish that I had asked myself. I think in grad school, particularly, I was in a lot of rooms where I was getting feedback from people who were not my target audience. And a lot of the feedback was still helpful. A lot of it also wasn't, but it it would made a big difference for me once I realized that there were some things that they just weren't going to get and that that was okay. Right. Well, I think it's also like, you know, especially when your story is based on reality or something that actually happened, you know, when that when that event was happening or when people are having these emotions in life, things are not always explained. Things are not tied with a perfect bow. That's just that's just not how we operate as humans. And so whenever you get that note from like an EP or a producer or an outside party reading your script and, you know, they want things to be a little neater or have a, you know, a happy resolved ending. I mean, sometimes you have to push back and be like, but this is not reality. This is not the truth of the situation or the story I'm trying to tell. And it could be hard to to push back on that. For me, especially really early on in my career, I felt like I could not say no to a note. Yeah. And you can say no to a note. Yeah. And sometimes it's crucial to say no to a note. I think that part of my feeling that I had to take every note was a little bit of a control thing. Like, okay, if I do what they say, then it's not my fault if it doesn't work. Oh, interesting. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. But like, I think that ultimately there's also a piece of Mm. like, at the end of the day, it's yours. I I would rather have Mm -hmm. my own failure than someone else's success. Mm. And I think that there's also something to be said for the learning experience of doing it the way that you think is right. And then even if you find out, oh, shoot, that note was right. Finding it out 
on your own because you've had the learning experience of trying and failing. I really think that like stumbling or making a misstep can be really, really important and pivoting and right. being willing to try something again. Well, and also it's the process of growing up as a writer mm. too. I mean, I think each project is so different and you kind of have to relearn how to take notes each time. I think early on when I was writing my first few scripts, I similarly felt like I couldn't say no about any note because I felt like other people reading the script knew more about the thing that I was writing more than me. And so like if they were giving me a no, it must mean they are right and I am wrong. But then there was this like cosmic shift that happened. I was like, if it weren't for me, it wouldn't even exist, period. Yes. Like, like, <laughs> so it's okay if I disagree with this person because I do know. And both being nimble and flexible and being curious about your own work and how it can be better while also having a true understanding of the core of the thing that you wrote and picking your bottles and knowing what has to stay and what can be improved upon. Mm, absolutely. A playwright friend of mine said to me once, no one is smarter than you about your story. And that has been really helpful and something I've tried to remember. And I also got really valuable advice to write down, like, what are my actual priorities? What are the most important things about this story to me? At the beginning of a process, write down your sort of like North Star, like the reason that you want to tell this story, the core thing about it that's important to you, the reason you feel inspired to do it. And he said, you have to do that because along the way, you will forget. Yeah. Like you will get lost and yeah. you will be in the wilderness <laughs> of that experience and you will be like, why did I even do this? And he said that when you get to that point, you flip back and you read like, oh, <laughs> this is why I did that. Um, and I think that having that sort of like North Star list written out also helped me when it got down to crunch time of like, we can either have this or that. It helped make that decision process so much easier because I had this sort of like filter of, well, these are the most important things. And so we're going to focus on those. Right. Speaking of the wilderness a little bit of, you know, the creative process, I'm curious at what point during production and it kind of can apply to both Nails and your current short, but at what point during production do you shift from writer Eliana to director Eliana? Hmm. Yeah. For me with the animation, it was when we had the animatic and then with this live action project, it was when we froze the script, which I think was about a week before shooting. And at that point, I really compartmentalize and I start talking about writer Eliana like she's someone else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, weird that she did that. Your alter ego. So goofy. I wonder what the writer was up to. Interesting choice there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's also for me a little bit of like, writing is the muscle that I feel is a little stronger for me just because I've been writing for a longer time. And so... There was a part of me where when we would run into something logistically, I'd be like, I'll just rewrite it. I'll just write around it. And then there was a part where director Eliana sort of had to be like, stop. Like, let's do a little more pushing logistically before we throw the whole thing out. Um, I think there is a really interesting and challenging, but also exciting interplay between being both parts of that process. For me, directing is about the intersection of artistic vision and leadership. So for me, the hiring process is also really important. And the culture on set is something that's really important to me. And making sure that all of that permeates, like from every stage of the process, in production meetings to on set to post-production. And so I think that when other people come into the process, directing brain is on yeah. and writer brain is somewhere else in the distance. And I think it actually sort of helps me feel like writing is more luxurious because it is indulgent. I think that indulgent is great. <laughs> that like writing should be delicious and fun and like something that is satisfying. It's self-expression. The other people coming into the process snapped me into directing mode and I got to sort of like run away to and luxuriate in the writing part that was just me. Do you feel like after directing a couple of shorts, like, do you, do you feel like that has had influence on how you write? Totally. Like, like, do you feel like you write maybe a little more practically? Absolutely. Yes. This was a big thing with me and Nails. As I mentioned, as a playwright, I was very, very spectacle driven. I love big spectacle. I love writing like, and then the house floats into the sky and all these set pieces <laughs> fall apart and confetti. And there's a massive um, creature that appears from the mist. Because and why not? Because why not? Right. And then once I was in the director's chair, it was like, oh, no. <laughs> I am now responsible for that spectacle. Who's going to do it? 
I have to do it. And so I think like that, that sobered me right on up about the sort of like (laughs) the casual quality of the way that I would throw spectacle into my writing before. And I think also in a way that made me more disciplined about it. I mean, disciplined can be a word with a negative inflection, but I mean it in a very positive way. Like it made me intentional. It made me more intentional about how Mm -hmm. and when I used big visual things, partially because of, yeah, the budget considerations, but also because of like logistically where they went. I feel like in some ways, director Eliana got to give notes to writer Eliana. And that was really helpful. And I think that everybody should write and direct a short film. And I think especially for people with a writing background, it was really liberating to step into that position. And it also just really taught me a lot, yeah, about the practicalities. And like, maybe we don't need this sort of like filler shot or or understanding like, oh, it's actually really complicated to ask to have this shot here. Can they have that conversation on the way to this place instead? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like ways to streamline and make things more efficient. I definitely think it's it's benefited by writing in so many ways to be thinking more about the practicalities. I feel like a big takeaway and learning that I had, you know, on like on both of my films that I shot was that there are some things that you can try to write but it's not going to happen until you get to set. It's not going to happen until you're filming. And so I feel like that's influenced my writing in a lot of ways where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to work this out when we're on set, which hmm. is probably, you know, it's it's risky, risky behavior for sure. But there are some things when you're like, you know what? Like this dialogue, I can try to work it. I can try to pre-plan it as much as I can, but I know it's not going to happen until we're there in, like on the set, working with the actor. And sometimes it leaves space for really beautiful moments. Mm, absolutely. And I love what you said about leaving space for actors. I'm really, mm-hmm. partially I think because I was an actor and because I turned to writing because I wanted to make opportunities for actors, particularly underrepresented actors, I'm so passionate about really making sure that actors have what they need to do their best. And so, like, I was really excited once we cast to be like, I'm happy to write this around you. We had an actor that had dimples and we, like, wrote in her dimples to the script. (laughs) And, like, there were, I'm always really big on, like, if any of these words feel weird for you or, like, clunky or it doesn't fit quite right in your mouth or if there's another way that you'd like to approach this, like, tell me. It's one of the biggest treats of working on a film that you can sort of tailor make the dialogue around the actor. And a a play is designed to work a totally opposite way where basically a play is like a blueprint that you are giving to like the world so that other people can remake their version of the little blueprint that you have designed. And so there's a degree to which it sort of has to be general because you're going to distribute it widely and people are going to find their own thing in it. But with a film, you get the opportunity to do it the exact opposite way where you can perfectly tailor make everything for the people and place that you have. I think that was also something that was really surprising for me too, where I'm like, okay, I'm going to write my script and then my script is going to be like verbatim exactly how it how it reads. It's going to happen on set. And then in the edit, it's going to be the exact same. But no, it changed like, I mean, not drastically. The story is still there, but there are so many elements that changed in it. And I'm curious on both of your films, like we can talk about Nails first. How did it change in the edit? Did it change in the edit because it was animated? And I feel like maybe no, but you can elaborate on that. Yeah, that was another one where no, so weird. But no, it was like each shot, our editor, bless her, is wonderful. And she's actually the same editor that I'm working with on this project. But her job was literally just putting the clips from one to 60 in order. Because that wow. was all the edit was on an animation. <laughs> um, or again, on this animation and this animated process. We had a little bit of leeway with composition. Our composition and sound design was where we had the opportunity to change the tone and the feel of the project a little bit. And there were little tiny, like we had little gasps and things like that. Where there was no dialogue, but we did have a couple <gasps> moments. That was as far as we got. Were those you? No. Those were our sound designer brought some friends in who actually did a really good job. There's some really sweet little sounds. (laughs) (laughs) But that was like, that was sort of as far as we could go. With this process, oi benoi has the project changed in the edit. It has been fascinating. (laughs) I think that I'm also going to write really differently having understood this edit now in a different way. That's been huge. The scene order of the project overall is now something that we're exploring and asking questions about. The pace of the project is really different than what we expected. There's a lot of things that are really up for grabs. And it's been really interesting. Like half of scenes, dialogue has been cut. And 
whether or not that continues, you know, we are wrestling negotiating picture lock right now. So there's still some sort of questions in the air, but it's really interesting how much the project could be transformed. There were also shots that I was so excited about. I was like, this is the biggest and best moment of the project. This is going to elevate it, take it to a whole other level. It's gone now. We scrapped it. I know. (gasps) I know. And like probably for the best, but there's definitely been some darling killing. And for me, there was like, there were, there've been darlings killed at each stage of the process so there's like the script darlings that got killed before we shot there were the production darlings that got killed because we didn't have time for them on set and now there are the post-production darlings getting killed just because we have to face that with the edit that we have they don't make as much sense but did you have kind of the opposite as well where you know you had to kill the darlings that you thought were going to be in the film but then they're replaced with other like surprises Mm -hmm. like did you experience that at all i did i think there were also a lot of things where I think this is gonna. This is a lifelong journey for me. I think because of the way that I'm wired and my sensibilities. But I think I ended up with a real deep appreciation for the moments of simplicity in the mm. story, and the moments of sort of like silence and stillness. As a writer and as a person, I am somebody who really values sort of like efficiency and speed. I tend to write really fast-paced stories. This is a nine-minute short film. The sort of pacing of things is something that's really important to me. And what I discovered in the edit especially was how powerful it was to have silence and to have stillness and a sort of moment of rest. And I, I totally acknowledge that part of that is the contrast of when things are going quickly, then stillness feels special. But Usually I'm someone where I go to the impulse of if we want to make something feel lifted or special, we have to do something Mm -hmm. or make something bold and different. And it was really meaningful to me to notice how little things and moments of simplicity and looks and touches and intimacy actually did so much more to make the project feel special than any big dazzling cerebral thing that I had tried to plan in advance. So not only are you in post-production for a short film that you wrote by yourself and also directed, but you're also in your first writer's room, which is really incredible. And and I'm so proud of you. I mean, I tell you almost every week, like, I'm so proud of you. Like, you're doing it. You're a working TV writer. But like, in many ways, this is like checklist, like dream come true moment. And I'm so curious to hear about the differences between writing a script solo versus being in such a highly collaborative environment with other writers. Yeah, I am only at the second week of my writer's room. So there's a bunch of stuff I'm going to learn from here. But so far, honestly, the process has been such a dream. It's interesting because in a way, it sort of reminds me of our conversation about taking notes, because there's something about being nimble and flexible enough to just be willing to like totally turn on a dime and have a completely new conception of what the thing you're building is. And a lot of that comes with working with other people where you have maybe half an idea that you kick out and then somebody else has two thirds of an idea that they add to it. And now you have an idea being able to really roll with each other and, and build story together has been so like thrilling and exciting. And I think that a lot of that comes back to the not being precious. And again, the idea that each thing that you put out builds something else, mm-hmm. like every, every contribution rises the vibration of the room and every contribution supports the ultimate story, whether or not it ends up in the script or on the board, it really has been fascinating to see the way that every idea that comes across the table comes back. Or if it doesn't come back, it sparks something that's the thing that we were looking for the whole time. That's been really, really exciting. There is, you know, the same way that you write a script and then you bring it to your production team and it ends up being so much richer than what you could have done on your own. I do have really felt so far that being in a writer's room, every single idea ends up so much more enriched than something I could have done on my own. It's actually really, I'm like, oh man, I don't want to write alone anymore. (laughs) It's so, it's so, so luxurious to be able to break a story with so many brilliant minds in the room. That's actually been really, really exciting. And of course, the thing of, you know, my work is really voice driven and the way that I conceive of stories is really voice driven. And to do something that is really intentionally in someone else's voice or like in the voice of the show has been challenging, but also really exciting because it's like, okay, what part of this show is my voice? And you'll always find yourself in there somewhere because that's why they picked you. 
And also just because the reason that your show is a great show is that there is space for all of your voices in it. And so finding like, oh, this this part I really click into and this is really my niche. And I think a lot of it does just come from those muscles of being willing to create and let go and create and let go. I think a lot about um, like holding with an open hand in a way where you really are supporting your idea instead of clutching onto it. It's been such a whirlwind so far and I'm sure it's going to surprise me in so many ways. But so far, I honestly do feel like the work that I've done as an independent artist has really prepared me for this space. I feel so inspired and just lucky that we got to have this conversation with you about nails, but then also, you know, catching you like in the middle of (laughs) post where it's very hectic for you right now. And so I'm very grateful that you sat down to talk with us about this. And this is really geared towards people who want to embark on the journey that we're still on, I think, very much so. And we're just sort of like bringing people along. And I think you and I both share the sentiment of like, everyone should be an artist. Everyone make a short (laughs) film because I don't know why we're like that, but we sort of tell everyone. We're like, do it, do it, do it. Make one. Apply for the wave grant. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Apply for the wave grant. And so this can be writing related or it can be anything at all. But I'm curious, what's one final word of advice that you might have for someone making their first short film? I think my advice would be just make it. Just make it. Just do it. Embrace it as a learning experience and be willing to pivot and to compromise and know that everything you do will build towards the next thing. I think I used to really, really feel like everything I did had to be a magnum opus that represented everything about who I was and what I wanted to say to the world. And There was a real sense of preciousness that made me feel frozen and daunted by the prospect of doing anything at all. And I think that the more that I have come to see the value of self-expression just on its own, the more rich my work has become and also the easier it is to just get it out. I think the process of nails really embodies that because it was a play, then it was one kind of short, then it was another kind of short. That was like all in all like a three-year process where I went through God knows how many versions of the draft. And there's a way to look at it as, oh, you wasted two versions of the script. But I think that what really happened is that those versions of the script did so much to enrich and build a foundation for what I actually ended up with. I have a friend who says there is no time wasted in pursuit of your craft. And Mm -hmm. I really think that's true. I think that every moment that you spend on your art. And I also think in any medium, I think that the things that we do as directors make us better writers. I think that the things we do as actors make us better thinkers. Like I I really do feel like everything creative is planted in the same flower pot. And when you water one thing, you water everything. And so I think just like doing it, making it, and then doing the next thing and making the next thing and, and letting your work flow is really helpful. So that's my advice. Just make it. It's going to be great. And then the next one will be even greater. Wow. Thank you so much, Eliana. It's been so amazing to talk to you. And now I'm going to make another short, Amy. (laughs) Thank you both, Anna and Amy. It has been so wonderful. Real Talk, a Wave Grant podcast is produced by Taylor Woldenhouse, Anna Verde, and Amy Omar. Mixing by Lonnie Rowe Wade. Theme song by Alana Meal. Executive producers are Jennifer Westfall and Joe Plummer. Presented to you by Wavelength.